You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Opera News. My name is Keith. The following articles are from the February 2023 Opera News and will begin by finishing the remainder of Graceful Strength. And same with Mimi. I think now I'm ready to... It's kind of also just taking a leap of faith, you know? Recently, the singer made her television debut, singing on the soundtrack of an episode of HBO's Lovecraft Country, based on the devastation of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, in which a white mob destroyed an affluent, predominantly black neighborhood. Generations of wealth and success were obliterated. Composer Laura Cartman wrote a requiem for Bruegger to sing, with a text adapted from Sonia Sanchez's powerful poem, Catch the Fire. Bruegger says the process was mind-opening on a lot of things. But I think one of the things that's amazing about that poem is finding your inner strength in the face of adversity, in difficult times, when even, literally, everything is crumbling around you finding that inner fire, that strength to carry on and to fight and to stand up. Especially since 2020 and everything that led up to that, I think a huge spark happened that we're all aware of, she adds, and it started the conversation of seeing more representation, not only on the stage but behind the scenes as well. And have we gotten there completely? No, of course not. But I do see those companies that are making that very conscientious effort to have more representation on the stage so that people can see themselves on there. I know for me it was a huge deal to be six years old, seeing Kathleen battle on that stage at Lyric Opera of Chicago at such a young age. You know, it was moving. I could see myself in her. Brugger acknowledges that the gravity of current events often weighs on her, but she tries to stay focused on her performance, so that by the time I enter the stage door, I'm in character. To detach and protect herself, the singer says she likes to just watch something really ridiculous and funny, read something light, or cuddle my son. Taking stock of what's important helps the soprano bring her full self to the stage. Often, Brueger has to remind herself that she's not a machine. She adds, I'm a human being, and you know, things could affect my voice even when I don't expect it to. But what I try to do is let go of that mindset and just enjoy the process, to be true to the character, to telling the story, to giving back to my colleagues on stage, to feeding off their energy, feeding off the audience's energy and then kind of letting everything else go, because you really can't control how people perceive you. Everybody has their own opinions and tastes, and that's totally fine. It's about giving my best on that day, my very best, and if one person is moved or comes up to me and says, thank you for sharing your gift or telling this story, I really felt something. That's the most rewarding thing you can ever experience. And now, truth and power. In the 1950s, baritone William Moorfield created a career against impossible odds. By Rosalind Story 
Tall and ruggedly built, with a baritone voice of silken purity, William Moorfield was a musical force in the mid-twentieth century. His reputation will forever be linked to his most famous portrayals, Joe and Showboat in the 1951 MGM film, and Porgy in Porgy and Bess, on disc and in an international tour in the 1950s. Yet Warfield's legacy holds much more than those iconic roles. His long, varied career resembled some of the jazz tunes that defined the post-war era of his greatest fame. True to form, but embellished with moments of glorious improvisation. Warfield's career achievements would have been impressive at any period in American history, but they seem even more brilliant given the racially charged times in which he grew up. Born in 1920 in the Mississippi River Delta town of West Helena, Arkansas, Warfield migrated with his family to Rochester, New York as a child, a fateful move that plucked the Warfields from the jaws of Jim Crow. After studies at Eastman and service as a U.S. Army intelligence officer, Warfield made his town hall debut in 1950. That success led to whirlwind concert tours. Everywhere Warfield sang, from small towns in the U.S. to Europe, Australia, and Asia, he won hearty ovations and critical raves. Warfield toured for the U.S. Department of State more than any other solo performer. On screen and stage, he shared billing with the likes of Buddy Hackett, Ava Gardner, and Carl Reiner, and he performed under the batons of Bruno Walter, Aaron Copeland, and Leonard Bernstein. Warfield lived until 2002, maintaining boundless energy, diligently working and teaching in his last years. When his singing voice faded, Warfield pivoted, winning a Grammy Award for Best Spoken Word album for his 1984 performance of Copeland's Lincoln Portrait with the Eastman Philharmonia. Despite his talent, the mainstream opera world did not welcome Warfield. Times were changing in pre-civil rights America, but not quickly. What headway Warfield made in classical music was not because of the times, but in spite of them. His town hall recital in 1950 was five years before Marian Anderson and Robert McFerrin broke through at the Met, and at least as many years before younger male artists would achieve first black distinctions in U.S. opera. Yet Warfield remained philosophical and calmly pragmatic. In a business that did its best to dissuade the black male artist, Warfield had a clear-eyed vision of the things he could change and a resigned view of the things he could not. In his autobiography, My Music and My Life, he wrote, Opera wasn't ready for me or any black male. As I progressed along my career ladder, I found a few rungs missing and had to look for a foothold in the most improbable places. A few missing rungs hardly hindered Warfield's upward climb. He was not one to dwell on lack of opportunity because of race, but he made an art of adapting, often with his trademark humor. Soprano Martina Arroyo, now head of her eponymous foundation, often shared programs with Warfield. She recalls his upbeat humor and gift for storytelling. 
we would be talking about something very serious, and then he would come up with something that would just crack me up. Arroyo recalls in a phone conversation, I felt like I was talking to a comic book. To Arroyo, Orfield had a realist's perspective, yet he allowed a natural lightness of heart and spirit to lift him above the fray. He gave you the impression he was not a bitter man going down, Arroyo remembers. He would just say, You've got to live, and you've got to sing. It was that spirit and philosophy that guided Warfield's life, and he passed it on to others. He was the type of man you wanted to ask questions, and you knew that he would tell you the truth, Arroyo says. He would tell the truth without bitterness or ugliness. And then there was that voice, rich with power, lyricism, and depth. George Shirley, now Professor Emeritus at the University of Michigan, shared a program with Warfield in the 1990s. I respected his artistry, he says. Bill sang from a place where we should all sing from, the solar plexus, where we feel things. When Bill sang, it was with soul, it was gripping. He was a magnet on stage. Once one experienced his artistry, you didn't forget it. Singing from the soul may have come easily for a southern preacher's son. Warfield's father, a Baptist minister, sang, and young Warfield was in the choir at his father's church. But Arkansas was rife with racial turmoil, and a deadly massacre in 1919 in the town of Elaine, near West Helena, surely caused unease for black people in the state. Composer Florence Price, a fellow Arkansan, left Little Rock for the North during the same decade. Warfield's father, Robert, followed other family members on the migration path northward. The culture shock of relocation must have seemed seismic, with New York's absence of whites only signs, or at least literal ones. Yet Warfield did not completely escape injustices. Drafted into a segregated U.S. Army in 1942, he was assigned ordnance duty until the language skills he'd honed at the Eastman School of Music proved him a natural fit for the U.S. Army's Intelligence Division. After his time at Camp Ritchie in Maryland, he returned to Eastman for a master's degree, then entered the world of auditions. A series of stints and musical shows followed, Call Me Mister, Set My People Free, and Mark Blitzstein's Broadway opera Regina. Comfortably employed but unfulfilled, Warfield wanted more. With the examples of tenor Roland Hayes and contralto Marion Anderson, both great recitalists looming before him, he felt the pull of the concert stage. Singing jazz and show tunes in New York's clubs, Warfield finally got the break he wanted, a town hall debut, in which he performed as varied a recital as New York had seen since the early days of Hayes in the 1910s. Warfield's program ranged from Carl Lowe Leader to Foray, Monteverdi, and Negro Spirituals. In the New York Times, critic Ross Parmenter wrote, Mr. Warfield held his listeners with everything he did, and they reveled in his voice. 
every other critic present fell in lockstep with praise. Warfield had made his rightful claim to the concert world's upper tier, and before the evening was over, plans unfolded for a multi-city tour of nearly three dozen concerts in Australia. By the time the tour ended, he had been signed to sing Joe in MGM's remake of Showboat. In 1952, Warfield starred as Porgy in the world tour of Porgy and Bess, opposite the Bess of Leontine Price, whom he married during the tour. In the ensuing decades, Warfield toured Europe, Africa, the Americas, and Asia for five more State Department tours, and he notched another screen role this time an NBC Hallmark Hall of Fame television special of Mark Connolly's Pulitzer Prize-winning play, The Green Pastures, in which Warfield played DeLaud. Separated and later divorced from Price, Warfield created a life marked by constant improvisation and reinvention, maintaining a peripatetic schedule of orchestra concerts, oratorios, recitals, and later, narrations of Lincoln Portrait. A consummate host and expert chef of Southern cuisine, Warfield would serve homemade fried chicken and ham hocks or his signature sweet potato pie to friends and colleagues in a New York apartment or in temporary quarters on tour in Vienna. A famous comic storyteller, he often held court with friends at restaurants over dessert with a cache of stories and jokes that would rival the repertory of any professional stand-up. In the 1970s, as a professor of vocal music at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, Uncle Bill, as he was called, was not only a teacher, but a mentor, counselor, and friend, offering career guidance to his students. Soprano Ollie Watts Davis, now professor of voice at UIUC, met Warfield when she was a student and sang with him on several programs at the school. Davis remembers the first time they met. She was rehearsing for an upcoming concert singing My Man's Gone Now from Porgy and Bess. He walked in and he just started singing along with me, she says. Warfield recruited Davis to apply to the UIUC Graduate School, where she earned her master's degree and doctorate and later joined the faculty. Warfield was always present with advice, often hosting after-concert receptions for Davis and her family. What made him really special as a person and performer was his graciousness and openness. He wanted the best for anyone he encountered, Davis recalls. I was a great beneficiary of someone who was a legend, but had a servant's heart. A naturally generous soul, Warfield routinely offered his home to students, especially those with resources too limited to travel home between semesters. Baritone Lawrence Craig was one such student. He studied with Warfield from the age of 16 until he was 27. Living in East St. Louis, Illinois, Craig shuttled back and forth by plane to the university to study with Warfield. It was a true Italian mentorship, Craig says, recalling sitting nightly with a host of other young Warfield students as their teacher dispensed wisdom, counsel, and enough food for an army. 
The Warfield table was laden with down-home specialties, from porterhouse steaks to blackberry cobbler, and, of course, that famous sweet potato pie. With Warfield, Craig learned the building blocks of his singing career. Theory, technique, performance preparation, and repertoire building that he passes on to his own students. But to Craig and others, Uncle Bill's teaching transcended music and technique and harked back to Warfield's roots as the son of a preacher. It was a single Bible verse that Warfield leaned on, and it guided him as an artist, a teacher, a colleague, and a man, recalls Craig, reading from the book of Timothy. Study to show thyself approved under God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's what he taught me, Craig says. It is with that fervor that you approach singing and every area of your life. And if your singing has truth and power, then the life you live will have truth and power. Rosalind Story, Fort Worth Symphony violinist and adjunct professor of black music history at Southern Methodist University, is the author of Sing Her Name, the novel based on 19th century black soprano, Cicioretta Jones. And now... Special Blend, The Factotum, Transports Figaro to Chicago's South Side, by Naomi Andre. Largo al factotum, make way for the factotum. The exuberant words that Figaro sings in his Barbier di Sevilla entrance aria are an apt introduction to The Factotum, a new work co-commissioned by Lyric Opera of Chicago and Houston Grand Opera. Inspired by Rossini's opera and co-created by musicians Will Liverman and Rocket Jackson, also known as DJ King Rico, the factotum has been eagerly awaited since February 2021, when Creating the Factotum, a 17-minute documentary video by Raphael Nash, was posted on Lyric Opera's website. On February 3rd, Lyric will present the factotum premiere, directed by Rajinda Ramun Maharaj and conducted by Kedrick Armstrong at the intimate Harris Theater for Music and Dance in Chicago's Millennium Park. The work's co-producers with Lyric Opera are Houston Grand Opera, Portland Opera, and Washington National Opera. Opera is undergoing a momentous shift as U.S. companies of all sizes are producing more new operas that move beyond the assumed white Western narrative. Now, there are new stories with thoughtful center staging of voices that had previously been exoticized, pushed to the margins, or hidden from sight. Canonic operas more and more often are cast with black, Latin, and Asian singers in leading roles, a move that more accurately reflects the talent available in and the demographics of the U.S. and beyond. The factotum belongs to a growing list of new operas with diverse creative teams that are broadening the set of experiences presented on the opera stage. In early 2020, the Los Angeles-based company The Industry produced Sweetland, 
an opera by composers Raven Chacon and Du Yun, and librettists Aja Kushwa Duncan and Douglas Kearney, at Los Angeles State Historic Park, located in the known territory of the Tongva people. Sweet Land, daringly used, Sweet Land of Liberty, the second line of My Country Tis of Thee, as the inspiration for a site-based tribute to the sustainability of the land and indigenous cultures of the U.S. In September 2021, the Metropolitan Opera chose to reopen after the pandemic shutdown, with Terence Blanchard's Fire Shut Up in My Bones, with a libretto by Cassie Lemons, based on Charles Blow's memoir. In April, the Met will offer Blanchard's 2013 opera, Champion. In May, Opera Theatre of St. Louis, a longtime supporter of composers of color, will present Damien Sneed and Karen Chilton's new realization of Scott Joplin's 1911 opera, Tremonitia. Other works pointing to new directions in U.S. opera houses include Omar by Rhiannon Giddens and Michael Abels about the enslaved Muslim scholar Omar ibn Said and A Thousand Splendid Sons by composer Sheila Silver and librettist Stephen Kitsakos, based on the novel by Afghan-American novelist Khalid Hosseini. Because all new operas face the risk of becoming one-time events, it is especially gratifying to see two American operas, one older and one newer, receive multiple performances at several companies in recent seasons. Anthony Davis's first opera, X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X, with a libretto by Tulani Davis, which had its world premiere at New York City Opera in 1986, received a significant revival, directed by Robert O'Hara, in May 2022 at Detroit Opera. The O'Hara production is scheduled at the Met and Seattle Opera in 2023-24. Blue, an opera about policing and the black family by composer Janine Tesori and librettist Tazewell Thompson was commissioned by Francesca Zambello for the 2019 Glimmerglass Festival and has since been performed by Michigan Opera Theater, now Detroit Opera, Pittsburgh Opera, Seattle Opera, Toledo Opera, Washington National Opera, and Dutch National Opera, where Liverman played the Reverend. The test of time will reveal whether or not opera companies will continue to develop their missions of social justice, energized since summer 2020 by the tragic murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter and Me Too movements, along with those centered on queer and trans lives and concern for the environment. With operas already completed by a group of seasoned composers, among them Nkeru Okei, Damien Getter, Carlos Simon, and Daniel Bernard Rumin. U.S. opera houses are poised to enter the present fully. The factotum belongs to the current moment, when we are experiencing a golden age regarding how blackness is represented in opera through its creators, composers, librettists, and producers, its interpreters, singers, conductors, and musicians, and the stories that are being told. The Factotum's creators have known each other since high school, when they were students at the Governor's School for the Arts in Virginia. 
Both Liverman and Jackson studied music, had piano lessons, and then trained in opera. Jackson had studied saxophone and later moved into jazz and got into producing, which led to his current work as DJ King Rico. Liverman, an alumnus of Juilliard and Lyric Opera of Chicago's Ryan Center, is best known as an opera singer. He had the leading role of Charles in the Met and Lyric premieres of Fire Shut Up in My Bones and will sing Malcolm X when X arrives at the Met in 2023-24. We'll continue this article next time. Thank you for joining us for Opera News. My name is Keith. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.